Welcome, everyone, to the Livestock Podcast. I'm your host, Curtis Reed. Today is going to be a lot of fun. Someone that I consider definitely an industry legend, a wonderful storyteller, been around the world looking at cattle and has gone through you know, some, some big moments within the breed and the selling of cattle and the popularity of it to, you know, scaling back, finding himself again, and then, you know, kind of jumping back into the cattle business again. So when we're in uh, two, three minutes, we're going to get in touch with Jimmy Joe Henderson. I know if you're listening to this, a big smile probably just crossed your face because you know, there's a lot of great memories of Jimmy Joe through the years and, again, the stories. And I'm just going to let him go because he's a natural-born storyteller. And it's just fun, fun to listen to. Shout out real quick on our social media channels. If you're not following us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, make sure you look us up at at LifestockPod. Leave us a comment. Share our you know, posts, get it out there so that we can talk with more and more people. More people get us into their earbuds driving down the road in their pickup, and we can talk about cows that much more because really talking about cows is the best thing about this podcast. It's what we do. We're learning from one another, hearing those stories, the good times, the bad times, and we're all putting it together to better ourselves, our friends. And, you know, sometimes your family, but never let your brother or sister beat you in showmanship. Always make sure you're trying to kick their bleep. The Go and Show and segment sponsored by the Cliffs Farm. We've got a pretty short and sweet one because come seven days, or I guess when you're listening to this, on the release date, November 25th, there's going to be a few of us hauling down the road to Canadian Western Agribition a yearly tradition. I'm just fired up. Sometimes you get a little nervous. You get that little anxiousness. Oh my God, Agribition's coming up, all the work, everything. I'm going to be gone for a week. But shout out to my brother-in-law, Conrad Keller. Thanks for keeping the farm uh, on lock while we're gone. And we're going to enjoy Agribition, our friends, our customers, and a healthy dose of competition because I tried to bring it every single time. Again, thank you so much to Season 1 sponsor, Clausen Industries. Make sure you're finding them at ClausenIndustries.com, your number one source for livestock handling, feeding, and freestanding panels or portable barns. So we've got Jimmy Joe on the line. Jimmy, thank you so much. We've been back and forth, trying to get uh, lined up to get on the microphone one-on-one and tell a few stories. So I just wanted to open it up a little bit to you uh, to, you know, kind of lead us into a little story about how Jimmy Joe came to be, right? Well, thank you, Curtis. I'm quite excited to be on your show. I've been uh, looking forward to it for quite some time. Yeah, the... You're sitting around having a beer at a cattle show and people are talking about some legend, legendary people in the business. And I'm like, well, legendary mustaches. We have to have Jimmy Joe Henderson on the podcast. <laughs> like, 
that 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 thing can like lead you into the room and then stories just start about it itself yeah well <laughs> uh it's been a great it's been a great ride and i can remember the first time headed to exhibition with brian latimer i was working for brian brian was 16 years old and i think i was about 13 he, uh, he would have been maybe 18 years old. And that was the first year that Louie let Brian take the show string by himself. And um, so I would have maybe only had my driver's. I don't even think I had my driver's license. I was 13. Anyway, we take off at 3 o'clock in the morning and load the trailer and off we go. And we're getting close to Outlook and... Brian says, I, I'm falling asleep. He says, you got to drive. I says, well, I can drive. No problem there, but I don't have a driver's license. I don't have a learner's license. He says, oh, go ahead. You drive. So I'm, I'm cruising along in the old um, three-ton Ford gas job, you know, 55 mile an hour, as fast as you can go. And we've got 12 head on the back. We're loaded for bear. I mean, we got I, we must have had three herd bulls and a couple cow-calf pairs, and it's weighted down. The old white line gooseneck with uh, tandem axles, dual wheels. Oh, yeah. Well, all of, a, all of a sudden, she starts pulling hard and and terrible racket going on, and Brian wakes up, what the hell's going on? <laughs> I think... I think I saw a pair of duels pass us. It says, oh, God. So we get her stopped and walk. We get out. It's still dark. It's about, I don't know, it's five, six in the morning. Oh, maybe, yeah, six o'clock in the morning. And we go around while the duels broke off. The studs broke off. The duels passed us down the ditch. And the other two uh, duels, they blew. So, just lucky, we're right beside a farmer's house, and the light was kind of on. And so we walk up there. It wasn't more than a couple hundred, you know, yards. And we walk up, bang on the guy's door. He comes to the door, and he says, "Uh, can I help you? He says, well, we just broke a trailer down. and." we we blew the studs off one duel, pair of duels and blew the tires. Do you have anywhere we could unload our show cattle? He says, oh, yeah, of course. He says, we just sold our cattle here last year and we're retired couple. The barn's all cleaned out. We go in there and this barn is spotless. I mean spotless. So he shakes up a bunch of straw for me. We unload the whole trailer. And I mean, it's only... It's only a few minutes to walk the cattle off the trailer into the into the barn. We tie them knee deep in straw and feed them and feed them a little hay. We we had to run up to Saskatoon's white line to get proper studs. We'd gone into town and they didn't have the proper studs. So we deadheaded, unlo- unhooked the trailer, deadheaded up to Saskatoon, get the studs, drive back. Um, the tire shop there in Outlook, they put the thing back on. We get the cattle loaded, and away we went. 
and we asked the old guy, hey, can we pay you? No, no, it was just a real pleasure just to have some good cattle in the barn again. And he, he said, we made his day. He was pretty excited. Oh, that's an awesome story because sometimes breakdown stories just don't quite go like that. <laughs> the the times where you've passed a friend of yours broke down on the side of the road and they got three head tied to uh, fence posts in the ditch and they're trying to... <laughs> Those are the bad times. So we get in late, but we got we get there. We got there, you know, late in the afternoon. Well, Brian, we had to wash everything, and and uh, Brian was pretty excited that you know we got there late. So we had a lot of catching up to do. So we're just bagged. And he says, he says, uh, I really want to go to the swamp. He says, we'll sneak you in, and I'm. 13 years old, you know, 13, 14 years old. I said, oh, shit, I'm, I'm game. I'm up for it. So we go in there and just pull the old scotch cap down a little tighter around the ears and puff up a little bit, make yourself look a little bigger. And we went in there and had a couple of rum and cokes and no problem. So I think I went back again. Might have missed the next year and then went back at 16. And that's when we learned how to drink beer on our heads. And um, <laughs> I love that you're bringing this story up because I've already had, <laughs> I, I've been asking around, we're, we haven't even gotten into your past or anything like that. And we're just getting into the juice. I was texting people well, around and I'm like, hey, I need, you know, this is your chance. I know Jimmy Joe's your buddy. And what do good friends do? They allow their friends to get sewered on a podcast so that it stays on uh, on the internet forever. And I just, <laughs> and they're like, you, you got to ask about learning how to drink beers on your head, uh, beers on your head. And I was like, well, we'll see how the conversation starts and where I will get that slid in. So thanks for just leading me into it. I'm ready for that story. Yeah, so Curtis, we're, I just, I just, um, this drinking on my head just came by accident. It was me and Dave Dury and there was somebody else. Oh, maybe uh, uh, Dean Boak. And so we're in the swamp. And I was trying to figure out drinking games. You know, we were, somehow we'd got in there middle of the afternoon and we were dodging work and having a few cocktails and I said, wouldn't that be neat if a guy could drink upside down? I don't think I've ever seen that. If I could master this, that would be the ultimate beer drinking game or trick that you know a guy could possibly do. Well it took a lot of time to get it right. So <laughs> the first time I get up on my head, I'm just just uh, on the, got my head on the concrete floor, throw my legs up, tilted to the wall. And I, you know, when you're upside down, you got to actually put the beer to your lips and then turn it up. Well, I turn it up without getting it to my lips. So I pour it all over my face, the first one. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> The second one, I, then I then I get that figured out. That okay, I gotta get uh, I gotta get the rim to the lips, 
then tip. Okay. So I get the rim to the lips, I tip it, and the beer comes all out my nose. And it, and I'm coughing and stuttering and and that ain't doesn't work. Yeah. So you know, we're we get scratching our heads and think, well, you know, we're gonna give up. This 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 ain't gonna work. I said, ah, I'll give her one more try. So, by God, I start getting a little bit of beer down, you know, up my throat, not down my throat, but up my throat. God damn, this kind of works. So then, I think even I went home and practiced it a bit, and then the following year. A guy goes home and practices. <laughs> <laughs> the, the stuff you you. Oh, for the story, you're legend, Jimmy. You're, and this is like, thank goodness. And I'm probably the last generation of, uh, you know, exhibitors that went to the swamp before cell phones all the time. Like, thank goodness we didn't have cell phones back then because the stories are way better than watching videos. Oh, yeah. Actually, too bad. We had some great moments of, you know, playing bum darts in there and, Don Wilson and and Lee. Uh, well, at that time, Don Miller and and Wendy, uh, Wendy Miller, Howard Snyder's wife. You're playing the bum darts and um, drinking on the tables, dancing on the tables. Um, you know, a, an odd time, clothes got taken off. More on my part than you know, the ladies. <laughs> I mean, I, now we kind of get, you know, we get drinking to the point where we got this pretty much mastered, and I got to pick it up a notch. You know, I'm starting to drink it a little faster each each year. Then, um, and things are going smooth. I'm kind of getting it down to about oh seven seconds for a beer bottle and three seconds for a can and uh, so we got to take it to another level and so they had the at the at uh, great cup time they always had a tv on a tv ledge up about 20 feet up on the concrete wall there was a little ledge that jutted out that this tv sat on well they took the tv down one year and i said you know what i think i could shuttle up there and I think Peter Boak actually and Brett Wildman, we'd get those two big bastards and and they'd put their they'd cup their hands together and I'd go running start, step into their hand with one foot, and they'd heave me up and away I'd go up top and I'd grab that uh, ledge with uh, both hands on either side and I would do a handstand and. You don't really realize how tough it is to do a handstand when your head's only six inches from the wall. It's pretty hard to get momentum to you know, use a lot of body strength to get your legs up. Then I would, somebody would throw me up a can of beer, crack it, down the beer in three seconds, and then I'd just free fall off the top and, and land like a three-point or two-point landing. Like a gymnast. Like a gymnast. <laughs> Just in all your glory, arms up, chest out. 
and then we'd either hip, you know, holler or, or chug yeah. another beer or, uh, yeah. And then, so we get that mastered pretty good. And we we're, I mean, we're getting some big crowds and, and, and me and Lee Wilson were bit, we're, we're betting people how many beers I could drink before either I fell or puked. <laughs> and <laughs> so, you know, we had some pretty good nights. We'd be up four or 500 bucks. <laughs> just, just saving up for the next night's tab. Yeah. Well, yeah. Things are expensive, you know, we're yeah. buying, you know, we didn't have a big eating expense. We didn't eat very much, and, uh-huh. but we did drink a lot. So then, then we, then we really took it to the next level where I started hanging over the hot water pipe. So there was a, a string of hot water pipes about the same height, about 20 feet up. But they're hotter in hell, so you had to throw your Carhartt coveralls up there over the hot water pipe. You get somebody kind of help you, throw you up there, and then you have to drink real fast before the heat burnt through the Carhartts and started heating up the back of your calves and the back of your knees yeah it was a it and then uh oh i think one night i i was just a little bit i'd i'd overdone it i did i'd probably drank too much and i fell right on there were on this round table full of rum and cokes and there must have been 20 of them in those plastic little glasses oh yeah i remember them and i i landed right on my stomach yeah and and all the rum and cokes just splattered these people and there was probably <laughs> drink drink to, drink there. token coins flying everywhere it was just mm-hmm. absolutely mayhem <laughs> these guys i thought we we're gonna get into a fight and these people started laughing and uh and they were just happy to have the cheap entertainment oh man and i think <laughs> We bought him another round of Lee Wilson. Bought him all another round of uh, rum and cokes, and uh, everybody was happy. And and uh, <laughs> we got out of there with the skin of our teeth. There we go. So that, that, yeah. So then it was just years after that, year after year of perfecting my trade. And that's the. You're probably the only person I've actually told that story to so you're this is Th- this is really good getting, i was gonna i was gonna badger you till i got it and you just like boom coming in hot <laughs> <laughs> oh my wow well everybody's driving to yeah all the all the kids now it. all the kids nowadays they just oh i feel so bad that they don't know the swamp do you remember <laughs> you remember the backside of the swamp how it went around underneath the stands right well, there'd be yeah. two or three of us that would hide back in those shadows just around the corner far enough where that bouncer couldn't see you. And then when a yeah. fight happened in the pump, we would run in and just run as fast as you could get into the crowd because it's standing room only. And oh, we're all yeah. big, big, tall kids. You know, my parents, <laughs> see my you parents, they'd, right they'd come to Agribition, uh, you know, a few days later, kind of end of the week. I'd be there with, with the crew and. And, uh, you know, they didn't help me at all. Those guys, they just, uh, they didn't help me, mom and dad, if you're listening. They told me not to do this. 
just to be just to clarify <laughs> but you know we'd run in there and then you'd find find the guys on the you know the other guys some of the other guys from the crew or or people you know and you'd be like here's 20 bucks can you uh can you just you know handle my drink tokens for me because if i go up there and they id me at the bar i'm gonna get tossed out my first bloody <laughs> my first bloody nose my first uh the oh, first dude. time i saw a you know outstanding Remember when they used to have the proposal competitions in there? You know, those were good yep. times. Those were real good times. Oh, so. yeah. I miss, I, I absolutely miss the swamp. Yeah. Um, such great uh, fond memories of uh, our youth. And uh, But believe it or not, like in those days, we, I mean, we did party hard and we, we went out till, you know, one in the morning or two, but we were up usually up at three to four o'clock and in the wash rack, you know, four, four thirty at the latest. Yeah. And, and, you know, all morning you're just like, you're hating your life and you're, you're, you're never going to do that again. We're not going to go out. And then by about three o'clock, you kind of start coming around. Yeah. And by five o'clock, I could have like, a drink. I could have a drink. I, I think we could do it again. I could have a drink. <laughs> no, we're, I'm fortunate. I've, I've had such fantastic young help these years, all these years through exhibition and hiring people on to come with us. And we kind of have a rule. You have to be 14. And then yeah. we, you know, we watch over these kids. We treat them like family. They have to be, you know, kind of getting up to that right age to, to go out or hang out a little bit, kind of go off without us. And when they get to that age, I kind of sit them down. I'm like, you know, I love cattle shows, the cattle business. People are great. They all want to visit. I am extremely social. And I used to go out and, and have a really good time. But I always tried to be smart, which yeah, a little bit of a white lie sometimes there. But, you know, you got to put your best face on. And, you know, so you just got to be very smart and don't mess around. Call us. You, you tell all these kids that. And then you, you, the last thing you say to them, and if you're going to go party and act like a big boy, big girl, you will show up to work like a big boy or big girl. And yeah. that. Like I can still remember the finger being pointed at my face at five o'clock in the morning when I was just dragging hump and getting yeah. a good, you know, ass chewing for lack of a more PG term in the middle of the stall because I had gone out the night before and I wasn't willing to pick my socks up. It only has to happen once. And then yeah. you know, that's a life lesson in itself. You know, first and foremost, you know, you have to be responsible. And we always were. Uh, and, but that was the thing is, um, you know, breakfast was the most important meal of the day. Because if you weren't home for breakfast, you're in deep trouble. And, uh, and then the cattle always had to be fed before you ate breakfast. That's right. And in those days, in those days we had to have everything rinsed and, yeah. and, and blown out. And then we could go eat. What do we have to do to bring back that, 
that uh, breakfast sandwich place that was in, <laughs> do you remember where the sales used to be yeah. now where they got all the sheep in that, right? And back yeah. right underneath those stands, that's the Canada building, right? I think. Yeah. But, and all those, all those old blue haired ladies that would make all those breakfast sandwiches, like people would just walk up there, set down a hundred dollar bill and they'd give you a box of, of 50 breakfast sandwiches. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was fantastic. It was, yeah, grab and, grab and run. Yeah. Grab yeah. And the ho- I just, you know, as a kid, I wasn't a huge fan of hollandaise sauce, but every breakfast sandwich they served you had hollandaise sauce on it, right? Yeah, it was awesome. So if, well, we, was, if, we bounce, <laughs> if we bounce back before aggribition and, and uh, you know, rewind the tape, I don't know if I have a fancy rewind sound or not, but if... You know, we're talking about these great stories, and they're lots of fun. But if if someone doesn't know Jimmy Joe Henderson, I just wanted to maybe get you to introduce yourself a little bit from there, kind of where you grew up as a cattle kid and really a, a son of the Angus breed. Yeah, so, yeah, I well, I was born into purebred Angus cattle, and and so it would date back to 1910 um, that my great-grandfather, actually great-great-grandfather, started their Angus herds in Lacombe. And they registered their first Angus cattle with Ottawa Livestock Records in, uh, in 1910. And they came up, so they were Scottish descent. And they came into New York from Scotland in about 1870, late 1860s. And they actually went to Bridgewater, Iowa um, first. And they they bought some land there and they raised some Angus cattle. They stayed there for about 30 years. And then they saw... uh, an ad in a newspaper, Freeland, and uh, so they they decided to go up to Lacombe and look at some land that was was uh, that they could homestead. And there wasn't anybody in Lacombe at that time; very few people. And and they homesteaded a, a spot, or they got a quarter of land just three miles east of Lacombe, and they went back and got four Angus heifers and an Angus bull, a team of mules, um, their household belongings, a plow, uh, one bottom plow, and then uh, the family piano, and um, got it on a box cart, and away they went. The, the train only went to Calgary at that time, and then they had to they had to drive the mules along with the cattle up to Lacombe. And so that would have been probably about nine, somewhere between 1904-1906. And even though that they brought cattle with them and the cattle were registered Angus, they didn't register them until 1910, yep. but, but had the cattle there um, prior. So your family was in Lacombe for a couple of generations until... You know, you're you're born three generations later, but 
the idea of Angus cattle and raising Angus cattle was, you know, just growing and growing within your family. And, and then with the, do you call it kind of the inception of Heatherbrook Angus or, you know, you know, that's something about, uh, with your grandfather, correct? Yeah. So my grandfather, um, well, it was my grandmother that loved the heather. So heather was a flower that grew in Scotland. And so she, she, she either brought some, either somebody sent her some seeds or she brought some heather seeds with her. And we had a little brook that went through the farm at Lacombe. And so she seeded these heathers and they grew up and so it would have been my grandfather called the place Heatherbrook Farms. And he was a, quite a character, Sam Henderson. He was a president of the Canadian Angus Association a couple times and president of the Alberta Association a couple times. And But he loved to show cattle. And so he, in the t- 1920s, he started showing and he took cattle out to Toronto to the Royal Winter Fair in 1926, and then then went on and went down to Chicago International Show. And in 1926, they had Champion get a sire. They had some class winners. They had some second places. So they're very competitive. And um, then and then he started. Um, Consulting and managing um, for the Canadian Pacific Railroad actually had an Angus herd at that time, and so he also bought cattle for for the CPR, and they they ran that out of Coldale, Alberta, that herd, and they showed everywhere. And so, so my is, grandfather, I got to interrupt there go for a sec. Is the CPR is that what the herd was called then, or? Is your grandfather you know, I, buying them and they're still kind of under the Honeybrook umbrella? No. Um, so they would have had their own farm name, and I need to look back in history and see exactly what they called that herd. But, uh, yeah, it was totally a separate entity, a separate farm, and the cattle lived at a separate farm. But Grandpa would buy the genetics, buy the bulls for them, and then select the, the show cattle and then and then oversee um, their cattle at the show. And so for that, the Canadian Pacific Railroad let my grandfather um, ship his cattle and his show cattle anywhere in North America on the train free of charge. And then... He was traveling through the U.S. extensively in the 20s, selecting cattle, and he'd jump on a train. And so he had a free ticket, even just for just a passenger train. And he traveled all over the U.S. buying genetics and bringing them back to Canada, back to Alberta. So he was actually the brought all the first cow families, like the blackbirds, the blackcaps the Genesis, the um, airlines, um, and then, you know, one of the most famous cow families and one of my grandpa's very favorite cow families was the Evening Tinges. 
Yeah. And that's a neat piece of history of cow history, like pedigreed history to bring those cow families for the first time into Canada. Like, I imagine if you ever sat down with uh, Mr. Burke at, you know, at American show or something like that, y'all could talk about those things for hours. I would just literally put a couple microphones in between you and, you know, that could be, that could be a uh, five episodes of content. Well, and Alberta had such a rich history with Angus cattle, you know, dating all the way through the, you know, the, the, even through the dirty thirties, Angus cattle did well. And, you know, in that time it was just virtually the Herefords, the Shorthorns and the Angus. And then, and then grandpa married, um, a Talbot. So my grandmother was a Talbot and the Talbot family were from Lacombe. They were Irish, but they had one of the best shorthorn herds. And so we probably have as much rich history in the shorthorn business as we do in the Angus through my grandmother. And the Talbots were one of the, one of the founding families of the Calgary bull sale. Uh, when the Calgary bull sale started, and if you go, if you go back through the the history book in Calgary, you'll see the Talbots and the Talbot family was uh, was a father and six sons, and the, and they're actually the one my grandmother's dad was a senator um, for Upper Canada when they when it was just Upper Canada and Lower Canada. Yeah, and he had very famous and a very astute shorthorn breeder and a politician. And um, and they lived at Lacombe. They had a beautiful home there outside of Lacombe. So in about 1912, um, they were very prominent, you know, in the Lacombe area and, and, and really helped get the, that whole Lacombe area established with farmers and seed stock and, and that's, that's how our family, you know, became quite successful in the early years is we supplied, you know, little breeder herds. Um, you know, new people would come and you would sell them two cows or three cows and a bull and there was no AI. And so, uh, um, and then if they couldn't maybe afford a bull, they would buy two, three cows. And then every year they would, they would, um, they would come in from Stetler or Cornation or Castor. Um, you know, they had to come in to Lacombe to catch the train to either go to Calgary or Edmonton. So usually in the fall, you know, we, we just had numerous wagons show up. They tell me, so they'd have, um, they'd have, uh, a cow or two to get serviced by the standing bulls at our oh. seed stock farm. Like a stud. We'd like a, almost like, a like the true vet definition of a horse stud more, more like not quite like a cow yeah. stud anymore, but one of the first studs I would imagine. Correct. And then they also had, they had perching studs standing. Um, they had, um, 
quarter horse, well, actually a really, at one time, yeah. one of the best Palomino studs in the country. Yeah, well, back then, everybody had thought, you know, people had cows and working horses and riding horses for transportation. They had hogs, they had chickens. It was just a much more diversified lifestyle because you were, you know, you're not going down the road to the grocery store. You're yourself, uh, you're self-dependent. Exactly. So, so they'd show up there. They'd, it, they'd unload the, you know, they'd maybe have a cow or two cows in a, in a sleigh in a crate. And then they had a couple horses in tow and maybe even a dog. Cause we, we had border collie dogs too. And so they would um, drop all the cattle off or whatever they had, horses, cattle, and then they'd drive the wife into Lacombe, and we were only three miles from Lacombe. They'd let they'd drop her off at the railroad station, and she'd go sh- Christmas shopping in either Calgary or Edmonton. And then the, usually the men, or if it was just one man, or sometimes it was father-son, or hired man and and father, they'd come back, and they would go through all the cattle, the cows, the cow families, and grandpa would sit down with them and, and tell them about, you know, anything from genetics to nutrition to marketing. Um, then they'd stay overnight. And so they'd get into some, you know, virtually um, drinking whiskey and water and, and have a good meal. Um, grandma and, and my mother would always cook huge meals and we always had a, we had a four by eight table and it was always full of people yeah. and people were coming in constantly and over a span of from about 1920 to about, uh, well, virtually 19, um, 80, 75 to 1980. So that was quite a span of, and and really the Angus cattle were very popular 30s, 40s, 50s. And then in 1952, we got foot and mouth and the market just plummeted. And I know that um, dad said that grandpa had a whole bunch of two-year-old bulls and couldn't sell one and they were all fat and ready to go right and nobody bought them they you know just couldn't sell anything nobody had any money so they put them on a a rail car and sent them down to burns in calgary to be slaughtered and uh, they got a bill back um so they the 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 bill for the transportation was higher than what they were paying for the cattle. And um, they got a, they sent a whole, like, I don't know, probably 20 bulls to be slaughtered and got a bill back. Oh, geez. So, but luckily that only lasted for two years and then it picked up again. But then dad got selling a lot of bulls into BC to uh, the Douglas Lake ranch and, and um, the gang ranch, and so they'd take, you know, they they'd take fifty bulls a piece. Well, all of a sudden, you know, back in 
So that was, you know, in the 50s and 60s. And they tell me that that Grandpa was up to, you know, four or 500 purebred cows at that time. Yeah, and, sizable. Um, like, there's people that had a big group of cows, but not papered cows like that, right? Yeah, that's correct. So you had mentioned your father there. Well, what was his name? Don. Don. And yeah. And then your your father stayed on the ranch with with your granddad and and kept going yeah, and he, helping develop the herd. Yeah, he was the worker and 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 actually a master breeder, but he wasn't a PR guy. So my my grandfather was always the PR guy. He was the guy traveling all over, really all over North America. And he'd get on a ship now and then and go back to Scotland to the yep. Royal show. And they would they'd buy. Oh, he only, he only maybe bought a bull out of there maybe once, but then he did a lot of consulting for like Sandy cross in, and Sandy and his family owned um, uh, the Calgary Brewery and was the very first brewery to be built in Western Canada in about 1904. Right. And he, he had a world-class shorthorn herd, and he'd hire my grandpa um, to, to go over, and he'd pay his way, and they'd go back to Scotland and, and buy the champion shorthorn bull and and then ship them back to Canada. Yeah, bring and, them um, on so back. He did. Yeah, so he, you know, he was really a world traveler mm-hmm. back when, you know, it, it'd take a couple of weeks to, to to sail back to, to uh, Scotland or England yeah. on the boat. And um, there's actually a funny story. Sandy was quite a drinker too, and he was a bachelor, and he was the brewmaster at the Calgary Brewery, and um, he was very colorful character. But but so was my grandfather. He loved to have a, have a scotch or rye pretty much any time of the day. Um, but they were always very well dressed and and very you know very gentleman like characters. But they had quite a constitution. So, um, the story goes that Sandy's, Sandy's got, he, he took quite a bit of cash, but obviously not enough to, um, back to, to Perth, to the Royal show in the UK, they buy their bull and they're, they're put up in the, you know, beautiful, nice old hotel and be probably similar to the Palliser hotel or the hotel saskatchewan and they're in the lounge well anyway the lady comes and says uh okay um uh, you guys are checking out tomorrow here's the bill and sandy says well we've got a problem we've got a small problem i'm out of cash well she says or he or whoever the manager was says well you can't leave until the bill's paid so somehow he either wires or telegraphs his dad back in Calgary 
So that that would have been A.E. Cross, one of the big four that started Calgary Stampede. He wired back for more money. So I don't know how long it took, but they they had already done their business and they were just sitting in the lounge day after day, drinking whiskey, eating good food, smoking cigars, waiting for the money to come in to pay the bill so that they, they would let these guys go. And so they were having the time of their life. Time of their life. <laughs> No, honey, that was the worst trip I've ever been on. You can't imagine the the stress of not knowing when I would see you again. <laughs> so that's now whether that story's a hundred percent accurate or not, you know, you be the judge. Yeah, it's it's on but, tape uh, now, so I'm gonna call it accurate. Okay. Yeah. It's as accurate as <laughs> this story's been handed down many times. Yep. And uh and the funniest thing, I went to work for the Cross family as a young man managing the bar pipe. And uh, so I worked for Donald Cross, which would be yep. Jim Cross's um, son, which was, and, and A.E. would be Donald's grandfather. Yeah, like in today, like there's Jay, and then so A.E. would have been Jay's great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather? Let's see, great-grandfather. Yeah, great-grand, just one great, yeah. Yeah. So one day, I see this old gentleman, oh, it's Sunday, and I had pet chores done, and I'm in the house, and I'm... I'm just kind of uh, having a coffee and I see, I look out the window and here's this old guy, small little guy in a kind of an old fisherman's cap and kind of ragged old clothes. And he's shuffling up my driveway. He's walking up my little walkway. And all of a sudden it dawns on me. He's got this big nose. And I said, oh, that's a cross nose. And I'd heard stories. I'd never met Sandy, but I'd heard all these stories about him. I go to the door and I say, hello. He says, young man, are you Jimmy Henderson? Sam Henderson's grandson? I says, yes, I am. He says, well, I just, I'd heard that my, I'd heard that my nephew had hired Sam Henderson's grandson and I just wanted to come up here and see what he really looked like. <laughs> and so I invite him in and he, then he went on and I asked him about that story about, about uh, going to Perth and getting stuck in that hotel. And he says, yeah, it's pretty accurate. He says, <laughs> and, <laughs> that's, straight, that's pretty straight then. Yeah. So, so yeah, he was just just a whale of a gentleman. I mean, that was just a the we we sat and visited for hours and just I just listened more about him telling me about my grandfather and all the great trips that they'd taken, you know, around the world and and looked at cattle and and what he'd helped them do and what he helped them, you know, just taught him about nutrition and feeding and showing and. And uh, so my grandfather 
you know, was very well respected and, and had had a lot of, you know, wealth and knowledge on pedigrees. And I got another, I got another question about your dad. Whenever someone describes another person as a master breeder, that's something that in my brain, it just clicks on a light. And I, people talk about having that gut feeling, reading pedigree, seeing cattle, envisioning that next generation. And the way you describe your grandfather, he had a big flamboyant personality. He was a businessman. He was a marketer. Was your dad kind of that quieter, very, you know, person that had an analyzing mind, inquisitive mind, and just kind of went about what, what he did? Like, how did your... Oh, no question. Like, when you describe your father as a master breeder, that's why I want to bounce back that way. Like, how did your father see those cattle? What were some of the things that that he told you? Because, you know, I have 27 purebred Hereford cows. We're the oldest breeding family, consecutive breeding family of Herefords in Canadian history. Started in 1889. And I've always just had a, I love showing and I love everything that the opportunities and what it's brought me. But nowadays I think to myself, showing isn't actually what makes me the money. It's breeding them and then marketing them correctly. But breeding 26 head so that every one of them is a great breeding, you know, cross or, you know, they all work. That's, yeah. that, that's something in itself. And that's what I strive to do every time. So that's, I wanted to bounce back on, on your dad about that for a sec. Well, well, that's, that's phenomenal history in itself, Curtis. And, and kudos to you to continue the legacy. The, it's interesting that, you know, dad, you know, wasn't the marketer and he was really a hands-on, knew the cattle inside and out, you know, could just look at a cow from far away and know who she was. And even though they ran a lot of cows, she knew every one of them, really knew how to mate them, ran the cattle more as ranch cattle. Like they weren't, you know, you know, maybe the two-year-old bulls got fed extra but the cows you know really lived on hay and and ran out most of the year unless the snow got too deep so they're very functional cattle and and then he was a big stickler for disposition and in those days if you you know a lot of people thought angus were wild well they had a very very quiet herd because they called the bottom so hard and he he probably made one comment that really stuck out to me is that he that he always said, "Don't worry so much about trying to mate the best of the best." He says, "You can make the most genetic improvement by calling the bottom." And uh, so that really stuck with me. Is you know, call hard and keep calling the bottom. Don't worry so much about trying to mate the perfect one on top. Is keep calling the bottom. And, yeah. and your, 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 um, benchmark will just continue to go higher, you know, and the, yeah. and the whole herd becomes better by calling the bottom. Yeah, that's right. And that's perfect advice in that situation. 
from the Livestock Podcast. We're so happy to have Rob Harrisimchuk with INC Cattle Speckle Parks on again, following up from last year's episode sponsorship and now wanting to bring us the news of his big chill event coming up in Saskatoon. Give her, Rob. Thank you very much, Curtis. We're uh, proud to sponsor this great podcast again this year. It's a, it's a, it's a great thing for all of us. So well done. Uh, Janice and I would like to welcome everyone to the fourth annual Big Chill Sale. Held at the top of the end, Sheraton Cavalier, beautiful downtown Saskatoon, December 17th. Uh, it's a great lineup of frozen genetics. Some of the finest Speckle Park genetics uh, in the world are going to be available that night. And we're proud to share the evening with uh, our partners, our guest consigners. I am our Speckle Park, Jonah Stock Farms, and KFC Farms. We always knock on the park for us. So come for the party, stay for the sale, and uh, you won't be disappointed. Check us out at Agribeshin. We've got a big show string, and uh, we're excited about showing off what we uh, have to offer. So again, Jess and I, INC Cattle Company, look forward to seeing you guys. Big chill, December 17th, beautiful downtown Saskatoon. So again, Livestock Podcast, if you're in the hunt for elite speckle park genetics in an international sense, we're not just talking locally. This is an internationally recognized sale. Make sure you're looking up the Big Chill in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan at the top of the Sheraton Inn, December 17th. Clawson Cattle Equipment is back with the Livestock Podcast as our season sponsor for Season 2. And without them, we wouldn't be able to bring you such wonderful content every month. So welcome, Cole. To the podcast, please uh, tell us a little about Clawson Cattle Equipment. Clawson Cattle Equipment is proud to be manufacturing premium quality livestock equipment since 2008. We strive to do so in a way that keeps not only our customers happy, but also our valued employees. We believe that honesty, integrity, community, friendship, and family are important for everyone. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and be sure to check out our website, ClawsonCattleEquipment.com. For all up-to-date information, pricing, and the latest contact information, call Cole at 780-205-4945. Again, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much to Clawson Cattle Equipment for being our Season 2 sponsor coming back from Season 1. Without your support, we would not be able to make this podcast happen. When your dad talked about breeding a cow, he's going to take... 38a and he wants to mate it back to 116y you know that bull's got a little more age to him but it's you know you're following along and you're probably has some daughters milking and that like what did he talk about in expectations of how those calves were gonna look based on the parentage yeah, well, it's pretty interesting because Grandpa was always bringing new bulls in all the time, and so probably the thing they focused on the most was cow families, and because um, they were always kind of changing up the bull, you know, the bull roster, and there was always new bulls coming in. But the cow families—that's why they, you know, in the early years they started 
in the Angus business, I really worked with cow families early on in the in the Angus breed and and kind of identified those top cows, whether it was fertility or you know structure. And he he talked about you know structure and feet quality and and depth of heel and and big muzzled cattle with strong jaws and and um and they wanted them with a little brisket and they yeah. wanted them with a little little dewlap or leather up front they didn't want those real refined cattle they were looking for some width of body and mm-hmm. um some character and some heart heart girth and some character to them i, I always remember and, my grandfather referring to you know tails thickness of tails yes. you know with the skull down through their muzzle and you know, I, I was very fortunate. I got to go livestock judging in the U.S. for six years, and it was an unbelievable experience. But not once was that kind of stuff ever talked about. Yeah. So I, you know, that's where I'm real lucky that I got to listen to those type of things growing up, as you're like you're describing, yeah. right? Well, it would really put you kind of up a notch and and one notch above the rest of the students. By having that background, I bet, eh, Curtis? Uh, well, to be honest with you, I didn't win much. I was too opinionated. I was too hard-headed at the time. If I could go back and and listen more to my coaches, because they're they're teaching you how to be a stockman, yes, but they're also teaching you how to win judging contests. When I got how to speak, yeah, how to speak exactly. <laughs> when I got back home. You know, I thought I was awesome. Judge a few junior shows, do things here and there, judge my first fall major show, get my first real, real uh, tuning in after a show from an unhappy exhibitor and, you know, reviewing those remarks in my brain. It's not the fact that he didn't win. It's what I said about his animal. Although I felt it was completely accurate, there are some ways to say things and there's some ways to say things in a judging reasons room with only one other person in the room. Right. Right. So that is a, that was a valuable lesson. And now in sales, that's what I do for a living. Those type of lessons, they hang on you for the rest of your life. It's like a little pebble in your backpack. You can either let it weigh you down or you can use it fueling you to the next one right so with with your dad and and talking about those cows so then you know natural progression you're here so there's you did you have the opportunity like getting into the heatherbrook angus herd as you were still showing and and traveling like before i call you a son of the angus breed and i make reference of that because asking around like uh, someone told me it was literally like you, you just showed up at every single sale, every single event, always, you were always there. So yeah. that's why I kind of call you a son of the Angus breed. Cause it's just <laughs> that that's where you were learning life from through, you know, yeah. that breed well, of your well, family. I got, yeah. Well, I, I, I got involved in 4-H, you know, right away, like at nine you know, nine years of age, I, I think we, you know, started, um, 
with 4-H and Lacombe. Um, and, I, and also at the same time, I was in horse 4-H because my, my mom was the horse 4-H leader in our, our area for 46 years. And then, and she, she was really the horse person. Um, and then my three sisters, I got three sisters and they were very active with horses. And, um, so, um, I started showing steers. I got reserve champion steer at Edmonton, um, bull sale in 1977. I would have had, so I would have had junior or, you know, junior champions steer, um, the kids division. And then we went into the open class and, and he was a straight Angus deer, and he ended up being reserve overall. So that was kind of the first big win for me in 1977. And then I really got the bug. Um, but we, you know, I we were clipping cattle. You know, I was doing sale cattle at Jim Brown's, that'd be Lee Brown's dad, in 1974. I was I wasn't very old and um I was blowing off cattle before they went in to the sale barn sorting cattle you know just helping out there and we did that every year for many years and then um then I got to meet Lee Wilson you know we were young kids at probably 16 years of age and we started custom a custom showing company called Majestic Cattle Company and Cattle uh, Services. I love the name Majestic. As soon as I uh, I got the message back about it being called Majestic Cattle Services, I instantly knew I had to ask you why did Lee yeah. name it Majestic <laughs> Cattle Services? Right? <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. We we probably thought about it over a beer. Even yeah. though, uh, did he, st- did, was and, he putting uh, Tabasco in his beer? Then someone asked me about that oh, yeah. one time and I was like, I actually think he legitimately does it. It's not just a little like, uh, uh, party trick. I haven't quite gotten, I haven't just caught on to that yet. We did it at Lloyd for, uh, for a, uh, l- one late evening and you know, you know, it, it does take the little bloat out of the old belly on a few beers. It does help. It does help. So we, me and Lee, we clipped all the Angus female sales in the fall and every bull sale in the spring, and we clipped thousands of them. And, uh, but in those days, I mean, we were clipping, you know, virtually, we, we had to, you know, clipping heads with the flatheads, sunbeam flatheads, and, and 20, top lines and combed them out so it was like 20 a day and it was like we have to figure something out here this is not very efficient and we'd heard of somebody torching in nebraska we'd never really seen it but we'd we'd heard that there was a guy in nebraska torching the hair so we thought well we let's give this a try so we first started with a butane, a blue butane bottle. Well, that didn't work. That wasn't big enough. 
And then finally I got the balls enough to pull out the tagger torch. And um and not just a mini start, one, full size tiger torch. No, the big heavy full size tiger torch. <laughs> Come on, kids. Don't be scared. I mean we're no, that's right. We were we were uh people would look at us sideways when we when we lit up that tiger torch for the first time. And um people were pretty skeptic. But then I mean we got on to it and we modified Lee was quite good at modifying things and he modified a little shorter uh tagger torch that was quite a bit lighter and smaller but then i mean then we ramped it up from 20 head a day to 40 head a day and then if you wanted to spend you know a real long day i mean we could you know we, we could do 50 60 if we really pushed it hard and started early and worked late so that revolutionized, you know, the, the sail clipping uh, business now. And there was, you know, there was other guys simultaneously uh, clipping cattle at the same time in Saskatchewan um, that were using torches probably around the same time. And, and at the dispute, who started, um, you know, who started doing it first, um, but I, I, it doesn't really matter. It really sped things up and, and did a great job. Yeah, because they were from Saskatchewan, they probably started on it first. Oh, I'm sure they did. <laughs> I'm sure they did. <laughs> um, you know, you're talking about torching and, and, and like those early stages of it. I torch our bulls every year and take some videos, put them on Snapchat or instagram and that and i'm always so surprised how many people have not seen it done or or don't do it because you know yeah. i torch a whopping eight bulls eight eight nine ten bulls in our bullpen and i'm like i just it's so much faster and then now that you got these smaller torches and get them ramped up mess with the regulator a little bit get those things really firing on all cylinders it, it goes fast i thought my you know, you know, I, I started shaving all the heads with a set of sunbeam flat heads to all those bull heads throwing their heads around. You try and tie the, get that rope under their chin. You're trying to put your fingers in their nose and keep them there. And they're tossing you all over the place. Cause I started, I was like, you know, 11, 12 years old when they yeah. brought out goat combs, 20 tooth goat combs for you know, a set of osters or what sunbeams. Like I still run a set of goat combs on sunbeams. I thought that was like life changing and shaving heads because all you had to do was take a swipe and the hair came off. You didn't have to let it actually cut the hair and eat it all the way down. Right. Like a set of flatheads and you never had, Oh yeah. you know, on flatheads, you always had to take the blades apart, wipe them, and then just grab a different cutter or a different comb and keep changing them, and then they would cut like they were brand new again. You always just had to keep swapping those dang things out. They, I could never keep them sharp enough. Yeah. Uh, well, and seventy-one twelves—that was a big. Yeah, that was uh, a big change yeah, I, I love, so. I love seventy-one twelves. <laughs> yeah, speeded things. I love clipping heads and front ends. Was yeah. Uh, that that speeded things up a bunch. So, 12 so scared then, me. I'm not going to lie. Back in the day, 12 scared me because there was a few times where 
I potentially nicked a fat roll and like when you do yep. that, there ain't no coming back from that. That that's just a learning experience <laughs> in itself. So the funniest thing was, uh, so me and Lee, we get we one summer we get putting all these cattle together, and we had about four breeds and about sixty-seven head of cattle on the road, and we were probably at like seventeen, eighteen years of age, and. Um, uh, so we didn't have a tractor trailer. I, well, I would borrow mom and dad's gooseneck trailer, but a lot of times we, we were on the road for a full year. So we, in those days you could go to every little summer fair, like Vagerville, Vermilion, Red Deer, Calgary, um, Grand Prairie, Dawson Creek. So we would, we would hire a truck to haul us from one show to the next so when we got there uh when we needed to move to the next fair i'd just go through the yellow pages pick a trucking company in the from the area and ask them if they would haul our cattle i'd usually have to get two trucks could you haul our cattle to the next show you know uh whether we're in beggarville or we're for vermilion and we just needed to move down the road and then we'd pay them, and and uh, the our kind of our motto was uh, uh, we wanted to stay in a good hotel. We always stayed in a real good hotel, and we ate one good meal a day, but we always had cold beer on ice. Uh, that was prerequisite, and we had about nine people working for us. Right, that's team and, morale right there. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So we go through the year and we charge a hundred bucks a head on the road, $7 a day at home. And, uh, we get all the prize money. So at the end of the end of the year, we go, you know, we've been everywhere. We've been on the road. We've had a good run and me and Lee never took a wage out of there. Um, we paid everybody else. And we get to the end of the year and we've paid all our bills. And I says, well, Lee, uh, we got good news and we got bad news. The good news is we got everybody paid and there's a little bit of money left. Bad news is you and I are going to split 800 bucks <laughs> for a whole year. For, for a whole year's work. <laughs> <laughs> from that i said this is bullshit i obviously we can't make any money showing a bunch of cattle um i'm gonna get a management job i think that's where the real money is yeah so so i started my first management job at 20 years of age and working for neil folks at spruce field limousine okay yeah, and uh, and Neil, we had um, Neil. He was a pig guy, purebred hog uh, breeder, and supplied all the Hutterite colonies and in Alberta. Yeah, boars. Feedstock. Yeah, yeah, boars and gilts, and and then he got into the limousine business. Well, he he was a good breeder and knew his stuff, and and. Um, he was selecting a lot of limousines out of the U S at the time. And he, he, 
he went down to Worrell's, Worrell Limousines in Virginia, and he had bought this really good bull um, called No Substitute. And that bull won everywhere we went. He actually won Calgary, Edmonton, and Regina, champion bull. And by the time we kind of got different other cattle bought up, I think by the time we got to Regina that year, that had been like 1989, 90, we had champion bull. Um, we had champion, oh, reserve champion female. We didn't have champion female that year, but we had every other champion reserve and division champion and then premier breeder and herdsman award. And so that went on for about, about two years. And then, um, oh, then I, oh, there wasn't as much money in, um, in managing as I thought, you know, in those days, you know, 20,000, 30,000 a year. And actually clip and sale cattle, you know, we made a lot more money than that even back then. And the price per head wasn't even that high, but just the sheer volume. So I kind of went back clipping cattle and, and then, uh, helping people disperse. I used to go in and, and work for people for say five to six months. Yeah. Um, get their cows AI to, you know, something popular and help with the pictures and the catalog and maybe take out a few animals to promote the sale and then have a big dispersal. So I did that for a few years and did very well doing that. So would that, would that be before you went to bar pipe or after? So that was before. Before, yeah. Yeah. Actually, I ended up going, working for Randy Remington. Yeah. Uh, the first time. The so first I worked time. for him. Yeah. Yes. I, I was there twice. Yeah. So we, I started. Well, but I, I want to bunch the, the Remington kind of all together into one for, first go around, second go around. I have uh, a few people just that have mentioned back to me and, I guess the first time that I had, uh, that I recognized like, you know, you in the cattle barns and around the business was more with Remington. I'm born in 89. So, you know, in the very peak Remington days, that's right in, you know, those peak influential days of when I was growing up and watching things happen. But, uh, somebody asked me to, you know, bring up like Sildon. Is that how you say that? S-Y-L. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Still, Don Farms. They had Charlay cattle. Don Peters and I. Actually, I I helped them. He was one of those fellows that was dispersing, and I helped him disperse. Yeah, that's why I want to bring that one up. you while you're talking about dispersing. Yeah, kind of 1988, 89 in that era, and then we had a bull that we bought from Snake Valley, a Charlay bull called Futurist. And he actually was the very, very first bull to win um, the very first Supreme champion that they'd actually had in Calgary Stampede, kind of the conception of the very first Supreme yep. that they had money at. And and they put $5,000 up and a belt buckle and mm-hmm. 
And, um, and actually it's funny, um, you know, the people that were involved in that bull, um, Dale Moulton and Tyler Bullock and his dad, Tim Bullock and Don Peters and Harvey Trimble. And they bought the, they bought the bull out of Calgary bull cell. He was champion bull from bags. And I think we paid 12,500 for him. And, and then we showed him at Calgary. He was champion at Calgary. And then he went on to be Supreme. And then he went on to be, you know, champion at Regina. And, you know, meanwhile, we day eyed all the cows to futurist and, and, um, we had a great show season. Um, we, you know, we prepared the cattle to a T and had them clipped perfectly, had them fed perfectly. And we probably increased the, we increased the value of the dispersal by probably 30% with, you know, going out and showing and doing well and promoting and the cattle and, and then getting the cattle AI'd and bred right. That, that was, you know, we really upped the value for, for Sildon Farms. And yep. so that was, you know, just another little um, feather in the cap and, and got me really rolling. I finished up there and, and my brother Doug had been buying commercial bulls for Randy Remington. He had a large ranch in Montana at the same time and ran a couple thousand commercial cows. So they bought a lot of Angus bulls out of Alberta and, and they liked the Alberta bulls better than, than, um, where they were buying the bulls in the U S prior that the bulls were just a little bigger, a little longer, a little bit more aggressive at that particular time. And so, so Randy had mentioned to, to Doug that, you know what, I, I wouldn't mind maybe trying my hand at breeding some of my own purebred bulls. And how would we go about, you know, setting that up and, and developing it. And he said, well, there's an awfully good bred heifer the, of Blair and Lois McRae's selling that aggribition. And she ended up being champion female. She was a bold ruler. Um, Elaine was the Elaine cow family. Yep. And, and uh, she was champion. And then she sold through the sale like at $10,000, which was a lot of money at that time. You could buy the very best at $2,500. Dollars, so that uh, brother Doug bought that heifer for Randy, and and then um, that spring he came up to Alberta or from Cardston, he came up to Lacombe and Doug couldn't tour him, and I actually had just finished up some jobs, and I says, "Well, I'll I'll ride with you, Randy, and I'll be a select bulls," and so I drove around to all the breeders and selected bulls and we put together a bunch of commercial bulls and he said hey i would i really want to start a purebred herd and i'm looking for a manager and i said well i would would you come and work for me and i said no i'm not really that interested there's other things i want to do and and but i said i i would certainly help you find somebody and 
maybe I could come down for a few months until you found somebody or we find somebody for you. So I go down that spring and the Rito 2100 bull calf was exceptional out of this bull ruler heifer. And, and I said, you know, Edmonton, they're going to have the very first sweepstakes in Edmonton farm fair. And it was where they had all the breeders throw in a thousand dollars each brand new concept. Um, and they gathered up 79 breeders threw in a thousand dollars. So there was $79,000 up and, um, Levi Jackson judged the show and by God, if we didn't win it, but the stipulation, and we had one whale of a party. So, but the stipulation was <laughs> that the bull had to freeze semen yeah. before you got your money, and you had to have semen by April 15th, no later. So the bulls had independent breeders, and um, and uh, the bull's not drawing very well. He's getting close, and just too many abnormalities and bent heads, and and but he's getting close. And then, so I'd call down there and ask, you know, Harry Haney. There we go. So Harry Haney owned it at the time. And I think even Brian Good was was their field man. Either Brian Good or Doug Nohood at the time. And so I'd call down there once a week. How are we doing? No, we're so close, but no, no cigar. We can't, won't freeze. So we're down, you know, I'm just walking on pins and needles. And finally, April 15th rolls around the last possible day. And, well, Harry, how did we do? No, we didn't make it. So we didn't oh, get our no. 79,000. Even though we won the show, we had champion <laughs> with yeah. a bull calf, no less. We didn't get our money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So sometimes the story of the cow business. Exactly. We were close, but no cigar. Yeah. So that, that was, uh, but then from there, you know, we went to putting together a very good set of Angus cattle. And so Ridge Lane Tibby 34N, which was a dam of, of, um, MVF. Tibby 15T that Robin Gale that got their start with that cow family. Um, we bought her out of Scott Anderson's dispersal from Mountain View Angus out of Manitoba. We gave $4,400 for her. So that would have been probably, you know, 1992, 91, 92, somewhere in there. And we flushed her to Bertheline Sting, which was the sire of 15T. And we actually had uh, an embryo in the, a female embryo inside the recip, and it split. So we had two heifers. They were identical, identical twins. And they hung out together um, anywhere you'd go out in the pasture they'd hang out with each other it was just incredible but the one we ended up selling 
um, to Asplen Angus. And Mary-Kate Robertson was working for Asplen Angus at the time. And they yeah. gave 20000 20, for it. And um, uh, then when we dispersed at Remington's the first time in 1994, we sold Ridge Lane Tibby at 14 years of age for 27000 and she was 14 years of age. And then she went on. Bjorger Patterson from Okotoks, Viking Angus. He went on and flushed her. And she she produced embryos and produced progeny until she was 17 years of age. That's and, a pretty um, good just, turnaround on a $4,500 cow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible female and and um, just did us a world of good. But we had in 1994 when we dispersed at Remington's the first time we sold, you know, close to probably we were kind of running about 200 cows, purebred cows. It's not a real large operation, but uh, we had the cows, calves, bred heifers. And that was the first million and a half dollar sale, virtually the first purebred Angus sale in Alberta to break a million in '94. So that was kind of record setting um, in those days. Uh, is that uh, like that dispersal is just Randy wanting to get out at that time, and and then you know you were able to find more work after that yeah actually um there was a downturn in the construction business and it wasn't that the cattle business was doing poorly the cattle business was doing quite well but his construction business wasn't and so we had to sell the land and the cattle to keep the construction business going believe it or not and um and round up some money so but he he always he vowed that, okay, Jim, we're going to sell this, but I want to get back in. If I ever do well in the construction business and make some money, I'm going to reinvest and I'm going to get back in the Angus business. And so he said, when I, when I get back on my feet financially, I'm going to give you a call. I said, okay, sounds good, Randy. And, um, you know, that was one thing about Randy. He was a man of his word. You know, and I still probably haven't come across a man like him when he decided to do something and wanting wanted to, whether it was buying land or buying cattle, um, putting a deal together. When he said on the phone, we're going to do it, it got done. And the money was there. Um and the drive to be successful and was just, it, it was just a given. There was no him and hawing about whether we were going to do it or we weren't. It was, we made up our mind we're going to do something, we did it and did it right. And um, so I have a lot of respect for, for Randy Remington. He's a very honorable man and, and a real doer. Yeah. So 
so we uh, then so from there, I actually went to work for Gordon Kluzak, a, a dentist, and I managed his Red Angus herd for a couple of years. Is that in Western Canada also? Like, did you ever yeah. go back and forth to the east or anything? Yeah, well, we were always traveling out east buying cattle, and mm-hmm. and um, but we put a nice nice herd of Red Angus cattle together. Um, there, I was only there about two years and had some good success, but then I got an opportunity, um, Bob Balog in Lathbridge was a great friend of mine. And Bob says, you know, Crosses, um, Donald Cross is looking for a manager and, um, they're old, they're, 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 the original manager there was was thinking of retiring, Don Jamison, and um, they're looking for you know some young guy that's got some talent to come and and uh, help them continue on. And so I I was quite interested because I was I always admired the, the Hereford cattle and especially with with uh, my affiliation with Remital and. His brother Doug was married to Linda, and Linda was a Latimer, was Louis Latimer's oldest daughter. So we, you know, we were, you know, shirt tail relatives through marriage. And so I had always had a lot of respect for Louis Latimer and Brian and Gary and and their operation and and their Hereford cattle and and then, um, but I, I'd always heard these great stories of all these high priced bulls. Selling the, the Calgary Bull sale for a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, and that was back in the seventies when you know you could buy a whole farm for that kind of money. Yeah, and uh, so I, I, oh, my brother Doug gave me um, a book called Braveheart, and it was a book on the Cross family, and and they were Scottish also, and Im- immigrated into Montreal. And they've got a long history in Canada, and they're, you know, involved in politics, and and um, actually uh, Alexander Cross. So that well, A.E.'s father was a Supreme Judge in Montreal, and they had shorthorn cattle and heavy horses of, and I can't remember what breed. And so in this book. Brother Doug says, here, read this history book. I bet if you read this book and you, you're kind of informed, it might help you get the job. So I, I spent one weekend, I'm a poor reader to begin with and slow reader, but I get through this book and just fascinating, the, the history of the Cross family and what they did. And um, they're virtually, you know, some of the first, investors in farmland around Calgary and you know one of the big four that started Calgary Stampede and built the Calgary Brewery and and uh, managed the Cochrane Ranch some of the very first cattle that came out to Cochrane um, that was owned by Montreal bankers and and you know had some success um, and then had huge death losses one year because of a huge snowstorm and um, 
where they thought they could winter graze all winter and found out they they did the first year and the second year the snow blew in and got so deep and cold half the cattle died. So after reading this book and I go to my interview and Donald says, um, and I, I start kind of feeling out time periods and what their family had done. And he says, well, you know more about my family than I do. He says, um, I think this is going to be a great fit. You're hired. And so I, I was there for about four years and we had champion bull actually there the first year, which I can't take too much credit for because Don Jamison had bred the bull and, uh, but, but, um, I could put the credit on feeding them and fitting them and, and, uh, Barry Dalney was the judge that year and he placed him champion and we sold that bull for 42,000 that year and then the next year we had reserve champion bull and he sold for 34,000 and um so um had really good success there really enjoyed my time and but then after about four years randy remington calls me and says okay jim i've the coffers are full um the war chest is full um i'm ready to buy land and i want to get back in the sangus business would you come work for me and i said you bet i'm ready so we went down in 2000 and we started buying land and we bought probably three ranches up for 500 dollars an acre and uh, those you know, the people just wanted to sell. They'd, they'd had that land for sale. It was so hot and so dry down there, and they were in the middle of a drought for three, four years. They wanted to sell. They, they just, you know, please come buy my land, and we're out of here. So then we started growing, and then it started raining. The first year wasn't very good. I think we seeded 3,000 acres of silage and got about a, enough silage to feed a couple hundred head of cattle and then it started to rain and we got feed and then oh we we just started going to sales and we started buying you know just kind of really good there was a lot of good sales um you know mountain view dispersed um crowfoot dispersed stretton creek um, up at Marwain dispersed. So this is all so we focused to... on Angus again, like firing back yeah. up in the Angus business. Yeah, correct. Curtis. But the, the second time at, at, uh, Remital is where you really put a fingerprint on the Semital breed too. Yes. Uh, uh yeah. Back Sorry, there, yeah, I, I might be speeding you. I just, uh, <laughs> uh, just no, putting that no together problem. in my brain. Yeah, so so we we started you know buying kind of the top end of the cows in each dispersal and getting a really nice Angus herd put together and and the whole focus was to raise commercial bulls and um, but Randy in those days the SBL which was where the first Semitol cattle came into Canada an old Prejean 
very first number one Semitol bull ever to come into North America came to Cardston, Alberta and, and, uh, was owned by SBL stood for Semitol Braiders, uh, limited. And, um, Randy always kind of had a fetish with, you know, just idolized what they'd done and how they'd put it together. And they'd built, you know, universal bull stud there at Cardston and, and sold some tall semen all over the world. And they were extremely successful. And he says, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to get into the Semitol business. And it was his idea to get into the Semitol business more in the red or the red and black cattle. So we started going to probably, probably the first Semitol sale was, um, bar 15, Quint and Ann Stivic was dispersing. Yeah. And Quint. Quentin was the man, actually, he was from North Dakota and married Ann, and Ann was, you know, from from Alberta, and and her family had sent very successful Semitol breeders. And um, he, uh, Quentin Stivic was the man that raised uh, QAS Traveler 23-4, which uh, was actually, you know, the real money behind buying the the farm i think mm-hmm. he sold the bull for you know back in the 70s for don't quote me but you know maybe forty, fifty thousand dollars somewhere in there and stevenson stevenson basin and gardner did now actually bought that bull from from quentin and went on to you know he was a couple million dollar bull in um, dollars worth of semen sales. Oh yeah, he was huge. Yeah, so we were able to buy fifty-one G there for nine thousand dollars, and fifty-one G was the dam of Lock and Load, Remington Lock and Load, and um, the start of the Baldy Crazen Semitol cattle. You got it. Really, got in, it. in my generation, you know, I'm. Sitting here talking to you, I'm 33 years old. That's the first baldy Semitol bull because the breed was traditional, red, or black. That's the first baldy bull that I remember that just had a buzz. And I'm just a little nobody Hereford kid, but the buzz about that bull was unprecedented. And then the real interesting thing, Curtis, was that we raised his sire. Now that 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 was really probably the pinnacle of our of of our career. You know, Gary Reardon and myself and Wayne Burgess and Ann Burgess that that, that helped helped me there at Remington's and made the whole thing successful. It wasn't just one person that was having all these great people uh, working there and doing such an you know incredible job but we we'd gone to we we started going to denver every year and we started buying kind of the top bred heifers out of the sale and so we were buying cattle out from drakes and um uh danner farms and we bought some blackfoot um daughters out of there 
out of avalanche daughters, uh, avalanche dams. That combination really seemed to work. But we bought a heifer called Soft Touch yep. for 20000 20, And she went on to be second in her class. She should have won that year, but she didn't. Mm-hmm. But she was the mother of On Target. Right. And On, on Target was the sire of Lock and Load. That uh, heifer that you bought, did you buy her privately in the stall? No, we bought her out of, no. out of the national sale. Val okay. Evansbacher had the national sale at Denver. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was really where they sold all the good quality seed stock, Semitol seed stock from across the United States. Um, you could really go in there and select some of the very best that you would find anywhere um, at any sale would be right there at Denver. So Now just hold up because I am so excited and really honored to have a previous episode sponsor from season one wanting to jump back in with season two. We have Rob Harris-Semchuk on the other end of the line here, and he wants to talk about their upcoming event, the Big Chill Sale. Jonathan and I would like to welcome everyone to the fourth annual Big Chill Sale, held December 17th, top of the inn, Sheraton Cavalier, beautiful downtown Saskatoon. On offer some of the best speckle part genetics in the world, as well as some... Uh, exclusive live lots as well proud to share the night with our friends and guest consigners donor stock farms highmark speckle parks and kfc farms they have some great great offerings as well so come for the party stay for the sale call on out to agribition and check out our stall and we can talk to you all night long about these great cattle and what speckle parks can do for you now I gotta ask. I gotta ask. You took a little break there. I gotta ask this. So, you're out buying cattle, selecting cattle. You're here and there. It sounds like Randy's highly motivated for breeding improvement and what you're doing there. But again, I just gotta ask. Like, is he just sending you out there? And here's the checkbook, and and you're kind of guns a blazing and and trying oh, yeah. to to do it or is it a is it a business meeting before you go through the sale books these are the 10 we're interested in in and then you know finding a payphone that's something that kids nowadays don't don't understand but finding a payphone calling back and going all right I looked through those 10 and and there's six of them we really need yeah well it, it was an interesting um Randy had a lot of faith in me and um i packed a checkbook with me and he always said you know at the end of the day whatever you bought you know you write a check and you leave a check um for those breeders they need the money and they need the money right away so uh in those days i packed the checkbook around and at the end of the day whatever i bought i left a check and he was phenomenal that way i mean that's one thing that nobody will ever say is that that nobody ever got paid. Um, he, you know, and he paid promptly. 
but the uh randy and i worked really well together i mean we talked about kind of a game plan and you know we'd sit on the phone every night every night after work at five o'clock would on his way home from the office after a big day in the construction business we'd visit for hours about our game plan uh, what we needed to buy um so he gave me a big kind of road map and and a bit of a guideline but when when we went to a sale a lot of times he came with me and um you know we'd go through the cattle and i said okay this is what i kind of want to buy and he says okay well here's a brief guideline you know this is probably the gross that we want to spend or or give me a but we we really had free reign to go ahead if we thought the animal would improve what we were doing you know go ahead and get it bought so what are a couple that fall under that category where you either had to make that phone call before or after the sale or when you found one in your travels like that well the, are, are there a couple the, that stand out in your mind that you were like you said to a oh, guy how much do you want no for that pleasure. one and they said a number to you with kind of a little bit of slyness and you go i'll take it <laughs> well two two really come to mind is uh remington red label we bought out of the yard uh, privately from Greg Hale in Texas and red label was out of the J 34 cow. Mm-hmm. And, um, the year before he had three sons out of the same cow, different sire. And he sold those bulls for $3,400 a piece privately out of the yards, even though they were champion pen. So we go down there in first place, we had as we head to his stall down in the yards. Right. And here's Winchester, Red Label, and Red Baron standing there. So Winchester and Red Label were full brothers. Yeah. Red Baron was out of a different sire, but the same cow. Yeah. And Winchester so, and Red Label at that time, they're kind of like OGs in, in Red pedigrees, you know, looking back. Yeah. However many years. Yeah. Well, and we, I, I told Greg, I said, how much do you want for, for red label? And, and, um, I kind of zeroed in on him right away. And he said, no, I said, no, Greg, I want a hundred percent interest, you know, full possession. I want hundred percent semen interest. I want full control of the bull. I says, you know, throw me the number with that all in mind. He said fifteen thousand. I said no problem. I'll take them. Wrote them out a check. Give it to him. We're walk. Me and Gary. We're walking out of the out of the yards, and here comes Chad Ellingston and John Jansen. They're the head procurators of Gen X at the time. Yeah. They're just young kids, too. young guys, and they're walking. They're headed to buy or lease uh, Red Label. But I beat them by about ten minutes, and so <laughs> in the Denver yards, yeah. <laughs> in the Denver yards, two Alberta boys just just got one over on two Americans. <laughs> <laughs> Do, and is that is that how 
They then purchased Winchester? No. 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 Actually, uh, Winchester ended up um, um, going up to Erica um, Kenner's in Devil's Lake, North Dakota. They ended up buying Winchester. Okay. Yep. But they, Gen X leased uh, Red Label for, from us. Yep. And um, it was a 60 40 split. And they paid all the expenses, all the collection, right. all the advertising and everything. And um, our 40% uh, was quite a sizable amount of money that we made on the bull. Yeah. Enough to buy quite a bit of land. Yeah. They work when they it, work, it was, right? Those investments. Yeah, yep. And some of those first ones, you know, when we got in on some of those you no, know, those cattle were pretty reasonable, and you start selling hundreds of thousands of dollars with the semen. It's like this is this is working. This is this is good stuff. But anyway, we made it red label to soft touch, yeah, and and got on target. And then Lewis Farms and Mark Shuligan bought on target that year out of our first production sale. No, second production sale, I guess. I think he brought 42000 that year. So then we made a dumb... Um, actually, I think we ended up flushing um, um, old 51G, the bar 15 cow, to um, on target, and we got um, lock and load. So that was, uh, and then the other great story probably is buying honey from uh, the Rockefellers from uh, Hudson Pines. Right. And, and I, I think it's important too, like when, when people refer, you know, you refer to the Rockefellers, it's like when, when uh, Alan was on Alan Browerney and talking about going there and taking pictures and that, like, you know, Hudson Pine Farms, that was, you know, kids, you're out there listening and everyone's thinking about the soda pops. Well, that's where that started. That look back in that yeah. pedigree, that HPF, that's, that's what we're talking about here. The Rockefellers, Hudson Pine Farms. Sorry. And exactly. after this, I'll ask you, you know, maybe a couple follow-up questions after this story, just about the Rockefellers. Cause I, I find that so intriguing. Yeah. So the, the, um, oh, actually it was, it was, um, Wayne that, um, that found honey, actually, we were walking down and down the aisle and they weren't, they were just freshly off the truck, kind of tied with their heads up and, and, um, Wayne Burgess says, Hey, there's a pretty good heifer there. So I go back and kind of look at her, and she's kind of squished in and amongst a bunch of other cattle. It's tied up, and holy cow, she is good. So I go over to John Walston. He was the manager at the time and and just a fantastic gentleman. And, and I said, uh, how much for honey? And he said, um, oh, he kind, of, he kind of brushed me off. He says, oh, it'd probably take 60000 to buy her. 
I said, just wait a minute. I'm gonna I'm gonna give Randy Remington a call. I'll be right back. So I call Randy and I says, Randy, there's a heifer here I want to buy. He says, Oh, how much? Sixty thousand. Sixty thousand. Sixty thousand. No, Semitol heifer worth sixty thousand dollars. I mean, in those days, you could buy the best one for twenty. And um, he says, well, who owns her? I says, uh, Hudson Pines. Who's Hudson Pines? You know, David Rockefeller owns Hudson Pines. Oh. On the other hand, it goes quiet for a while, and you can tell he's thinking. And he says, you know what? You just, I had a check in my pocket. He says, you just go over there and give that man that check for $60,000. And so... I go over there. So the wheels are turning, obviously, and Randy's had about maybe doing some future business with these people, you know, spark a little, spark a little money and, and see, uh, yeah. spend it to make it generate, if we can generate a little bit more business. So I could, I could tell what he was thinking. So I go over there and I says, okay, John, I'll take that heifer for 60,000. Well, he just about lost his teeth. He spit and sputtered, and <laughs> and uh, he says, "Well, I didn't think you were going to take her. I, I thought I priced her high enough to carry you off." He says, "I haven't even talked to Miranda Kaiser or or David Rockefeller yet." Yeah, he says, "I'm probably going to get in trouble for doing this," but he says, "The words, my word." Yeah, deal's a deal. Yep. Deal's a deal. He says, um, but I would like to keep back one flush because I'd be, you know, I'd be uh, hung out to dry if I at least didn't keep a flush. I said, yeah, that'll be fine. I'll, I'll settle on that. So I sat down, sat down on a bale of straw and cut him a check for sixty thousand and and uh, gave it to him. Shook his hand and we we become instant friends. And then. Um, and then she went on to be a reserve champion female yep. that year. She should have won it. We got kind of beat by politics. Um, a red heifer actually had, was champion that day, but we we felt that Honey should have won it all. But, you know, Honey, even at 60000 she um she made that money back very, very quickly. Her first flush was 25, number one embryos conventionally. Um, next flush was 36 embryos and we 36, sold a bunch. And the technology wasn't quite as, as precise as it is today, like 25, 36, bang, bang. Yeah. Yeah. She was such a big egg producer and very high conception rate on those embryos. Yeah. And, and then we sold a lot of the, a lot of progeny out of her. Um, she is still alive today. Um, uh, steer jock no somewhere way. in the US has her huh? and still flushing her and still selling embryos out of her. And she's still, so she would be, she'd have to be 16, 17 years of age. And she's still going and still flushing and still kicking out eggs. HPF honey. Yeah. Whoever's There's listening to this right now. Go to the Livestock Podcast Facebook or Instagram, and if you know where she's at, comment on there so that uh, 
you know, we can get that back to Jimmy Joe. So then, um, so then after, oh, uh, so Mr. Rockefeller, David Rockefeller would have been about 92 years of age at that time. And he invited me out to their farm to have dinner with them. And, um, I just had a, a great time visiting with him and, and looking at, you know, all the paintings in his house, personal house. And, yeah. uh, and he, he was, a he was a bug collector. He loved to collect bugs and he had the largest bug collection in the world. Um, one of the nicest, um, wine cellars I've ever seen. And, um, Kind of a funny story. There was these this painting of lilies. There's Rembrandt's, Picasso's, um, and then I can't remember the other artist. Anyway, he says, um, "What do you think of that painting there on the wall?" And I said, "Well, Mr. Rockefeller, I'm no art critic. I'm a cattle judge, but..." I I'd have to say I really didn't I don't like that painting it's it wouldn't be one that I would choose or buy. He says really. He says I I had the I had this Japanese guy come and he's taken it off the wall three times he wants to buy it. I charged him 100,000 each time he wanted to look at it. Every time he pulls it off the wall I charge him 100,000. He says my wife bought that painting for fifty four thousand no thirty four thousand in nineteen fifty four and uh he says, You know what you've convinced me I'm gonna sell that painting <laughs> <laughs> sitting across from david like Rockefeller like get. <laughs> Oh my God. Next time I see you better have your glasses way down on the tip of your nose. Don't you know I am an art, uh, yeah. I can, what uh, curator? I am now an art curator. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was full of bullshit. So what, what's it like having Mr. Rockefeller pour you a martini? You're in upstate New York. Yeah, you're you're at York. the house. You're like the I, the parties yeah. they would have thrown at their sales. The hospitality, like that, might be forty five minutes of itself. I'll tell you a really interesting story about uh, David Rockefeller's uh, loved martinis, and he said, "I never started drinking until I was about twenty two, and I I don't drink any other type." Of alcohol but martinis so we sit in the sitting parlor and myself and john walston and and he gets this big pitcher of ice with a big silver spoon and he free pours vermouth in there and then he free pours some vodka and, and put triple sec in there, all free pouring, stirs it all up, and he's got three martini glasses, and he's got lemon rind perfectly cut. Somebody's gone in there and cut these lemon rinds by hand, and they're perfectly shaped and perfectly cut, and they're in 
the martini glass and he pours the first one, three pours the first one, three pours the second one, three pours the third one, and, and the last drop comes out and all three glasses are perfectly in line, the same level. And he smiles at me and he says, not too bad for 72 years of experience. <laughs> So we we toast, have a martini, and and start talking about. He's asking me questions about BSC because we just finished going through BSC, and he knew that you know exactly the amount of money that that BSC, you know, the cattle industry had lost going through BSC, and you know he says uh, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of. Seven billion dollars worth of equity just blowing up, you know. And, I, and he said, "I just feel so bad about that to the Canadian ranchers and farmers that have just lost millions of dollars worth of equity." And he says, "It's just something that you just don't come back from." And um, and he said, "You know, he really said, geez, it, it, he was very sympathetic about you know how." U.S. had treated it and the politics and RCAF and you know he 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 really understood. He was also the chairman of Chase Manhattan Bank at that time, and at ninety two he was still going to work every day, five days a week, Monday through Friday. Yeah, um, you know nine to five, and um, so I mean he really knew world finance and world issues, but he loved agriculture. And loved Semitol cattle. Now, now the real love came from his wife, Peggy. Right. Um, she was really the the cattle lady and the push behind the cattle. And and she'd spent a lot of time at Agribition. And in the early seventies, the first Agribitions, she would show up there in a mink coat and sit down. She loved Crown Royal, and she'd sit down on a bale of hay and talk to any semitol breeder right you know that would take the time to sit with her and drink uh, drink um, straight crown royal out of a paper cup or a coffee cup or whatever she could find whatever yeah. and just yeah and just talk cattle and she was just an amazing woman yeah we and, all have um, these ideas of people that always seem bigger than life right and you meet them yeah. and, and when they're just so down to earth, like, gosh, that's, yeah, that's why she well, was so amazing. Yeah. Like Miranda Kaiser was their grand granddaughter mm -hmm. and she looked a lot like Peggy and, and, um, you know, we, we actually invited them to participate in our bull sale and they brought out, they sent 10 bulls out to one of our, first bull sales and they were our guest consigners in our bull sale at Remington's. That's, and I didn't then, know that. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And she stood up and like Miranda did. Um, um, at that time, David Rockefeller, Mr. Rockefeller was getting, he was, his, he, he actually ended up with dementia or, or Alzheimer's. And um, so he started deteriorating slightly after I'd, met him at 92 so 
it progressed. Like he made a hundred years of age, but you know, his last four or five years were, you know, his, his mind was, was, um, not, you know, it was deteriorating, but, um, but Miranda, you know, she, she was definitely, um, you know, a world-class person, very good at selecting cattle, looking at cattle, great person, great personality as far as marketing herself and making people feel comfortable. And, and then shortly after that, they bought their ranch in Montana and started their Montana bull sale kind of off off the ideas that they learned at uh, our sale at Remington's and kind of how to market commercial bulls and, and um, kind of the, the different breeding They kind of changed their breeding a bit. They still had their show cattle in New York, um, but their Montana cattle were quite um, a different type, uh, more, you know, commercial orientated and they were, focusing more on commercial type um uh phenotype and confirmation for the commercial cattlemen so right and it it, it had gone on for years and was quite successful so right now and in the snapshot of where we're talking like you're riding on the highest of highs it's good times it's lots of fun and you know this is something you and i talked a little bit about uh previously just you know something i did want to bring up because you know it's not always the highest of highs and and you talked about it a little bit with jimmy reference before but that's uh is that brands and barbed wire right that podcast of his yeah yeah really great uh great podcast i definitely recommend anyone that's listening if you haven't heard of that to go and you'll never want to listen to my scratchy squeaky voice again once you hear uh Jim's let me take your girlfriend million dollar voice, but <laughs> you know, that that is what it is, uh because of that time yeah. and I'm not sure if you know there's some some out there that maybe don't know you or or don't quite know the story, but you had kind of started to run into some mental health issues at that time. I I did, Curtis, yeah. So I really didn't know what was happening to me, but I knew that you know, when I was working at Remington's, um, my health, my mental health was deteriorating and I was getting anxiety and, and, um, I'm a perfectionist and they say that perfectionists, um, it can happen, you know, when you can't have control of everything and, um, we're trying to be successful. We're trying to, we're on a top world-class operations so i mean we were the place is always neat and tidy and every uh, every tree branch every lawn you know every blade of grass is mowed perfectly and the fences were painted and the cattle always looked the part and and just keeping that many cattle healthy and you know all bred and and sound and there's a and, lot of pressure um, a lot of pressure there's, externally there's, and internally yeah so i could i didn't know what was going on with me but i i didn't i know i was just getting very irritated and agitated and 
pissed off at any little thing. Um, you know, quick to criticize. Um, I was getting headaches, stomach aches. Um, you know, and I just, just absolutely come in at night. And I was just, you know, tired, like just beyond tired, falling asleep, you know, in the middle of the afternoon and sweating, you know, just part of anxiety. And, but I didn't know what it was and what was happening to me. So, you know, my, you know, it starts with not eating properly and drinking too much coffee in the morning and, you know, having dry heaves in the morning and you can't eat breakfast until noon. And then your stomach kind of calms down enough. You can kind of eat a little bit. And so, you you know, losing weight and not sleeping, um, you know, sleeping three, four hours and then waking up and waking, you know, going to bed at midnight, waking up at four o'clock in the morning and then just going out, going to work because you can't sleep and worrying about everything. So I finally resigned. Um, I still didn't know what was going on, but I had, I just had, just couldn't handle the pressure and handle all the, we had a lot of men working for us and big sales and trying to run a lot of cattle through sales and getting them all marketed properly. And, and I just resigned. I just had enough. So I'd gone to start my own operation and I had, I was 45 at the time and I figured, you know, this is the time to go on my own and, and, um, you know, if, if I have a chance to build my own farm, I need to do it now. And I right. couldn't, you know, wait another 10 years and I'd be that much older and not have the energy. Mm-hmm. Was your brother still running, running your family's operation at that time too? No, um, actually my brother had gone into sales management mm-hmm. and right from a young age and him and his wife, Linda, they, they were in the sales management business and very successful, sold a lot of semen in the spring, bull sales, you know, managed bull sales in the spring, female sales in the fall, had a very successful business. And my dad was getting older. So, you know, he dispersed the herd and, and I was, you know, I was make at that time I was still working and making lots of money. And I thought, you know, I didn't think I would ever go back home actually. But when I, when I resigned, I started um, buying some cattle and, and first I actually worked just down the road at another ranch at Alphans and they allowed me to keep cattle there and I helped them manage their place. And they, they were large grain farmers and had, um, you know, about a thousand cows, but they allowed me to run my own purebreds there. And I built up a herd there over a couple of years and built up, you know, a really good herd of Angus and Semitols. And then I moved up to Stetler and partnered up with Don Peters again, which I dispersed him and sold on farms. And he kind of helped me get going financially. And he was, you know, very good accountant. And I kept building the herd and grain farming and got up to about 3,000 acres. Um, 
of grain and running about 300 purebreds. And then I had the opportunity to buy them out. And um, I took the cattle. He actually kept the grain, the larger part of the grain farm. And he kept, because I was renting a lot of his land. So he kept his land and kept farming it. And I went on and and um, started leasing big tracts of land kind of between Settler and Caster and, and got up to about 1,700 commercial cows. And I was trading a couple thousand cows. And then, and I, then now I'm really pressured up because I'm knee deep in debt leased land, leased machinery, you know, lots of hired men. Um, and then the market dropped. And that was probably when my mental health really flared up is when, um, you know, my inventory dropped by 40%. They dropped my operating loan because my inventory wasn't worth as much. Um, and I, I'd bought a lot of cattle. Um, you know, I'd traded all these cows, which I'd buy them in the spring, grass them, breed them, sort them, and have a big cow sale at Baylogs every fall. And then sell lots privately. We'd probably sell five, 600 cows for Baylogs and a few bulls with it. And, but then when I'd, I'd bought a lot of inventory high and then it dropped by 40%, then... Um, you know, the first sale, even though I, I had a million dollar sale, mm-hmm. uh, just to break even, I needed a million three, you know, so I was behind about 300,000. And then for the next two years, I did nothing but lose money. Yeah, selling and on that diminishing market. market. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the cost, we were in the middle of a drought. So hay went from five cents a pound to 10 cents a pound. And mm-hmm. I was buying feed in, you know, every month. 80000 to $100,000 worth of feed per month, burning through my own cash because the bank wouldn't lend me any more on my operating. Mm-hmm. And and uh, before you know it, you wake up and you got no money. You got no credit left. And and, uh, and you just say, okay, I surrender. Yeah. And that's when I really had a, you know, a major breakdown. Ended up in the hospital. Um, you know, I just couldn't function mm-hmm. my, yeah, the, uh, the mental stress and the anxiety had just taken over and I was virtually useless for a couple of weeks. As your, your body was trying to stop. My body was shutting down. Yeah. 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 yeah I couldn't, uh, I would just thought I was in a black hole and I could never, ever get out. So, you know, had some pretty dark, um, terrible thoughts go through my head and thank God I didn't act on them. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, got on some medication. I read a lot of books and kind of worked through a lot of my issues by just reading and, you know, the doctors were okay, but they really didn't understand even that much about mental health not like it is today Uh, now where no we want to shine a light on it we want to you know never let that silence become more than someone can handle 
exactly. Yeah. So, and then all they wanted to do, well, all they wanted to do is push, you know, more antidepressants at you. And, mm-hmm. and so luckily I found a drug that, that built, um, serotonin. And so, uh, synthetically and, and that drug really helped me. And so just building up that serotonin level in my brain really helped just get my mood leveled out. And then I was allowed, you know, at night, uh, serotonin turns into melatonin. So the melatonin was high enough that I was getting a good night's sleep, started eating properly, you know, refueling yourself. I had, uh, I had Cynthia Beck on an episode at the very start of this season. And, you know, she is a, a mental health expert and that's what she talked about. It's, it's fueling yourself, not forgetting to fuel yourself because you're the most important piece of equipment to your operation, your lifestyle, your family, everything, you know, everything falls after, after you, right? Because if you're not looking after yourself, it's, it's tough to look after the other stuff. Oh, exactly. Yeah. The, 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 you know, the, just, I was forgetful. I was, I was moody. I was grumpy. Um, but you know, getting off of alcohol for probably about a year, you know, I still drink a little bit now, but you know, nothing like I did before. And so moderation, um, you know, having a good breakfast in the morning, um, you know, staying away from sugar, staying away from too much, um, gluten, you know, so, you know, cut down on your pasta and your bread and yeah. the things that uh, process, affect you. Right? Meat. Yeah. Yeah. So just getting, you know, trying to get good vegetables into it. Oh, just good nutritious food mm-hmm. and, and trying to, you know, feed that. We do such a great job feeding our cattle and worrying about uh, minerals and and um, oh yeah chelated chelated minerals and balancing a ration and yep. getting the right amount of protein and and all the micronutrients that you need into your cattle and we forget about ourselves that you know how important it is for the cattle to make everything work right that we're not doing the same thing for ourselves so. Mm-hmm. You know that nutrition is so important for humans, and and um, and I needed to get rid of the stress. So the actually the bank came and offered me a deal that they would take, you know, a very sizable hit, and uh, I would have to take the same amount. So I lost everything, um, all my machinery. Uh, vehicles. I didn't have a house. I didn't have not a penny to my name. Yeah. And um, so I had to start right from scratch. And a good friend of mine, Kevin Woods in Mooseman, Saskatchewan, gave me a job nailing mm-hmm. straw one fall and combining. And then I, I've been back there for five years every summer, helping them and working and. Trying to make some money. Yeah. Are you, are you helping run yearlings then? Cause I like, that's where my, fa- that's where my family, like both my parents were born and raised in, in Mooseman. Our, my father still, well, own, still, still owns our, 
homestead south like you're on your way to the it's one of the last farms on the uh what would be west side of the highway before you go down into sure. the valley where the golf course is there used to be a sign oh, really? there that said like herford's honk twice there used to be a sign there that said that uh i think it's been gone yeah. for quite a few years now but well yeah. i'll be darned curtis yeah, yeah i neat. didn't know that huh Geez, there's a lot of pulled Hereford cattle and and Hereford breeders in that area or came from that area. Oh, yeah. well, when we first got married, I said to my wife, I think we should move to Mooseman, Saskatchewan. And I think she was just, a, she just loves, and why, why wouldn't we? We love being in the Saskatoon area and great place for our family and that. But growing up, I always envisioned myself moving back to my, my family's 19... 19- Oh seven, oh eight, Saskatchewan wow. homestead. Yeah, yeah. Well, you never know, Curtis. Maybe you might end up there one day. Yeah, never. We'll we'll see when uh, my wife gets tired of her starter husband and wakes up and <laughs> <laughs> realizes that, it, that that it's not a dream; it's real life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and you know, you're getting back on your feet with Woods is. And, you know, working back up and. Yeah, that gave me enough money to, you know, buy a donor cow. So I bought a really good Angus cow and out of um, Nebraska and brought her up to Canada and started flushing on her and selling embryos. And I've seen quite a few calves off of her in my, in my summer travels. Oh, good. Yeah. So she's been a winner. She's, she's, she saved my life really because it, it gave me, um, you know, uh, some, some, oh, just some pride that, you know, mm-hmm. um, pride of doing something and buying something from scratch. And I had to borrow every red cent to buy her, mm-hmm. paid a lot of money, paid a lot of money for her. And, and then, uh, I had her at Stevie Ackley's in South Dakota and, the bills were coming in from there. So, I mean, the bills didn't stop, right? but we were, we just kept selling embryos and doing what we could do. And then, uh, you know, money started rolling in and then I was able to buy another cow and mm-hmm. flushed her, bought a really good Musgrave cow. Then I was able to buy another, you know, made enough money, bought another cow and, and, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm generating um, lots of embryos and three different breeds, Charlay, Semitol, Angus. I was just about um, to ask you about that. You're, I like the fact that, you know, I guess I at the start I kept calling you, you know, more on the Angus side of things, but I like that you're touching back on multiple breeds and doing those different things. I've had that discussion with my wife, you know, Celine. What would happen if we just said, I want to buy five cows, five more donor cows, different breeds, and we just went about it the right way. You know, I do these podcasts. I listen to such great stories from yourself, from lots of the other guests that have been on here. And, and sometimes it's a little bit of a gamble. It's a leap of faith, but it's it's also trusting your instinct as a cow person, I just don't, I, I don't, it. I don't know if I'm a good enough marketer. Like I'm still learning that 
trade within the Hereford breed within selling show steers or some show heifers. You know, I'm not, I'm not at the top of that game. So I, I haven't quite just decided if I should jump in and do something like that. Cause when you have a female cell nowadays, and if you have six breeds in it, who cares? You have it on the yep. internet. They sell everywhere. Exactly. And, and, so, and someone calls them. you and goes, I didn't know you had that breed. Do you have more? Right. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Just having that leap of faith, faith and you think, Oh shit, I can't do that. It's too much money. It's too much risk. You know, you, you think of all the things that could go wrong and really what you should be doing is thinking about all the things that could go right. If you just take that step and have a little faith in yourself is when you see that good one and you, you say, geez, I know I could make that work. You know, don't, you know, react on that, on that voice in the back of your mind saying, yes, we can make that work. We can, let's do it. And, um, so some, it is a big leap of faith, but, um, if you don't, you know, if you sit back and say, ah, that's just too much risk. I can't do it. You'll never, you'll, you'll never, um, feel the joy of true success when it does work. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've had plenty of failures, but I just keep getting back up and brushing myself off and keep moving forward. Do you think that the years that you had in the business and being such a public figure in the business too, like, you know, when, when Remington came around to buy something, it's not like you were there to buy something in the last third of the sale order. There's nothing wrong with buying anything in the last third of the sale order. There's great cattle there, but I think part of it that I think about and just, you know, investing in those donors is sometimes when you make a significant payment on something, it comes back around and just the sheer it always does. marketability of it. Yeah, no, you're right. Money, money creates more money. It, it, it feeds on itself. So yeah, you're creating business by that first, you know, that first transfer of check, even though you're writing that check to the next guy for that animal. You know, it always comes back tenfold. So mm-hmm. that's what's so great about our business is is trading genetics and trading ideas. And so it, it's transfer of money, but it's also transfer of energy. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, we've got such a great wealth of knowledge of people in the industry. A lot of times you don't take the time to listen sit down, take the time to listen to somebody's story. And, um, you know, you're always going to learn something. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's not what you should do, what you shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. I could tell you more things, what you shouldn't do. Cause I've learned the hard way. <laughs> yeah. But I sure appreciated your comment when you said that being that internal optimist and focusing on those you know, positive outcomes, you're still weighing them to the negative. You can't be a blind fool, but being, being that internal optimist, I think can open some of those doors or allow you to take some of those leaps of faith that they're calculated, but we just have to justify it to ourselves. 
No question. Yeah. No question. Yeah. You just, you got to stay positive. I mean, I, I'd get beat down and get hard on myself and, you know, say this is a shitty industry and, you know, why would anybody, you know, you know, there was days and it was just like, this is bullshit. Mm -hmm. Um, this ain't, this ain't working. And, and then, um, you know, but then the next day somebody good comes along and says something good about your cattle or, or buys one or, or, you know, sometimes it's just the smallest comment will feel, you know, give you enough fuel to keep you going mm-hmm. until the next success or the, you know, the next good uh, high seller or the next good one you bred or the class winner or the champion or, you know, there's those great days that motivate you for the rest of the year, you know, like aggribition. Yeah. I mean, the people that, the people that come out of aggribition that have done well and, or, or surpass their last year's goals or, or, you know, you don't always have to have champion or just making small milestones, like going from the middle of the pack to the top third or, or the top third to the first place, you know, you're always trying to improve and, and do a better job the next year. And, and that's rewarding, you know, just the fruits of, you don't have to win. Yeah, fruits of your labor and and comparing your cattle against everybody else's across Canada. Mm-hmm. Agribition will always be a real soft spot in my heart that, you know, virtually grew up there yeah. and uh, seen a lot of changes in type changes to, to and then the people, the, the characters in the business. I mean, I just incredible amount of people we've met and everybody has has come across the characters and the the flamboyant people the um the winners the losers the high rollers to the good practical breeders the commercial guys you know we're i think we're in good hands i know that um we're going through some drought we're going through you know, shortages of feed and high inflation, but um, that will survive and we'll continue to have a commercial cattle business, a purebred cattle business for many years yet to come. Yeah. Oh, Jimmy, I, you know, you've been so gracious with your, your time with me. I, I don't want to cut you off or, you know, I apologize if I interrupted you a couple of times. I just, I always had some ideas pop in my brain to ask you and follow up on. I just, I've been trying to soak oh, as, as, as much of your stories and, and your information that your life experience is, is second to none. And I'm, I'm so thankful that you wanted to come on my podcast and share that. Cause I, I'm really fortunate that across Canada and, and really starting to grow in the United States are, you know, my listening, audience the core of the audience is between 22 and and uh, 46 technically if just looking at the analytical data but a lot of people in that time frame and that's right where I fit in because you're just you're always looking for the next thing your next idea trying to be progressive so I I'll wrap up and I just wanted to open up to you there 
if someone wants to get a hold of you about some Angus, some some maybe Semitol, the Charlay side of your genetics, your donor cows, how does someone reach out and, and find Jimmy Joe Henderson or learn the secret of, you know, really growing out the perfect stash and getting a great curl right out to the end? <laughs> well, well, thank you, Curtis. And I also want to say too, anybody that's having troubles with mental health and just needs to talk to somebody. Um, and if you're having a bad day or, or you need a little advice, please reach out and give me a call. I, I'm more than willing to visit with you and um, help you along the top road of getting through life. Um, I'm there for you. Um, so, and my number, best, best thing is I love to text. Um, so 403-740-9270. You can text me. You can email me at jimmyjoehenderson at gmail.com. Um, Facebook, Jimmy Joe Henderson. Um, I just love visiting with people. And if I can help you, I would, I would love to take the time to do so. Uh, that's great of you. And, and in the show notes, I'm going to make sure I go back from, from Cynthia's episode earlier and make sure we also have some of those support phone numbers and programs that are available because no matter what, everybody needs to know that they're not alone. So yeah. Yeah. When, when you think it's, it, you're in your darkest days or hours and nobody uh, is there for you. Um, it's amazing. The amount of people I talked to after I went through my mental health issue is how many great uh, leaders of the industry that had gone through the same thing. And I just didn't know it. And, um, yep. some people I would have never, ever thought would have had any mental health issues. Um, you know, it was very surprising and, and, um, so, and there's a lot of people out there willing to help. That's right. Well, thanks so much, Jimmy. Best of luck, uh, headed into that sale tomorrow and, and you never know, maybe if you found that next one. That's right. You never know, Curtis. You so, bet. uh, look forward to, look forward to seeing the aggravation and everyone else. Yes. Yes. Please make sure you stop by and, and, uh, find me in, in the old Hereford, Hereford string. And I look forward to us sitting down on the tack box and having a visit. What a great interview. That sounds exactly like I'm tooting my own horn, but it's not me. Like I just, Jimmy Joe was fantastic. This is a long one, folks, and I'm not sure I'm going to get them to, you know, my buddy Jordan to edit it down just a crazy amount because I had so much fun. That flew by in a heartbeat, laughing, the seriousness, the tones, like that had a little bit of of everything in there. And and I just want to reiterate what Jimmy said, like, don't ever, anyone out there that ever has a struggle, like, don't ever feel that you're alone. Lots of people that are willing to talk to you. There's, you know, the stigma of mental health has has really taken a change in a positive light. So if you ever feel like you're going through a hard time or that you need to talk to someone, 
every your loved ones, people close to you, all those support systems, they're all available to us. So thanks for sticking through this episode. So much fun. Safe travels if you're on your way to Agribition, if you're going to be traveling in a little bit later. If you're listening to this while you're washing or drying or working hair at the show, make sure you come find me at uh, you know at my stall in the Hereford barn. The Cliffs Farm is my, my family's operation. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, please come and chat with me. It, this is a, a big passion of mine. It's so much fun to talk to people, talk about cows, get out there, see more cows. Then my wife said, she's like, do you ever like, are you ever going to get sick of cows? And I'm like, well, it's just kind of, uh, you know, that, that, that passion, that, that industry vibe to me, uh, you know, I'm all about it. So make sure that if you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend about it, please leave us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast listening app. And uh, from there, shoot, we'll be seeing you all at Anchor Have a good night.